to Playback, a Variety podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. On today's show, we recount chaos at the Oscars as Moonlight won over La La Land in a twist no one saw coming. A little bit later, I'll be talking to Logan director James Mangold. So stick around. Well, hey, anything fun happened this weekend? <laughs> <laughs> what a cluster. I know. It was, it's like, I don't want to like oversell it, but I don't think you can. I was doing an interview with German TV yesterday and they were like, you know, would you consider this like, you know, the biggest thing to ever happen at the Oscars? And I was like, uh, yeah, hands down. Without a doubt. Yeah. I like, mean, I, it's, it's one of those things like I, I still can't really believe it happened. Me too. I woke up this morning and like double checked. I've rewatched it multiple times, too. It's like the Zapruder film to me. <laughs> and I was getting mad because people had edited versions. I was like, no, I want to see the whole thing from start to finish. Yeah. You know, I want to see that because of watching at home, you know, there was that moment where the stagehands rushed on and you could see, like, people looking at each other and you, you just knew. And I was, like, thinking, oh, my gosh, did they get the name wrong? No, they couldn't. They couldn't. It's, I'm sure, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I just love Twitter exploded with literally all caps, what is happening? What is happening? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, in case you've been under a rock, we're talking about the Oscars where Warren Beatty was handed the wrong envelope for Best Picture. He was handed a duplicate Best Actress envelope. Mm-hmm. Had no idea how to proceed when he was looking at Emma Stone's name on the card, which I guess I can't blame you if you're like... No. I mean, on one hand, he's Warren Beatty. Like, <laughs> like he's he's weathered the spotlight his whole career, but... But also that's a weird not moment. known as an improviser, is yeah, he? Not, he not likes exactly to reshoot things that's several true. times. That's true. Yes. I, told, I feel bad. I thought he was doing a bit. Yeah, you I know? did too. I think everybody yeah. thought he was just, you know, do-do-do, going to act like I don't want to tell you who it is. Yeah. Like, but no, he was like, uh, there's a moment where he looks behind Faye like he's looking off stage. Right, like, right. <laughs> yeah, in retrospect, you know, you, you see all the ways that people mm-hmm. have tried to get out of this. But at the time, I, I literally tweeted... Um, Come on, Warren, this is an American Idol. <laughs> and then it felt and, very bad. And Faye Dunaway, you know, busts his ball. She's like, oh, you're impossible. Yeah, come on. And he's like, well, here, you read it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think he was just showing it to her. Like, yeah, he was just like, what do we do here? Yeah. And she's like, la, la, land. And, ugh. But what's chaos so ensued. crazy is by all logic, it was supposed to be La La Land, so really the <laughs> yeah. snafu shouldn't have mattered. Mm-hmm. But then the fact that Moonlight was the winner was mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, that's 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 true. Like yeah. on top of everything, it's like like they could nobody would have known if yeah. it had just gone the way people expected. <laughs> the stagehands ran out. Wait, oh, okay. Has God. anyone made Hands the comparison yet? I'm sure someone has. That it's basically the year Crash won in reverse, where where like you know we were expecting Brokeback Mountain, and then it was Crash, and everyone was angry. He we were expecting oh, La yeah. La Land, but then the movie that like regarding were, the reaction to yeah, the movie, yeah yeah it's definitely the the first time since Brokeback Mountain that uh, you know like a movie kind of crashed on the waves of success no pun intended. on on, on yes. the on the shore of success as another movie kind of zipped along ahead yeah no pun well intended. it is it, it's almost even more shocking because and you know I love Moonlight and I'm thrilled yeah. that it won but it didn't win SAG Ensemble you know this, it I, had I, no precursors I to indicate this was coming I haven't drilled down into this yeah but why should we predict anything next year I know right there's not there's we no, did not do well this year no, I, I early on I was just like okay this is gonna be an off yeah. year yeah and the weird thing is, I got the most random things right, like you know, editing hacksaw. Mm, yeah, we, I think you picked hacksaw. Didn't no. you? oh, you didn't. Okay, so Tim Pick and I Lala. picked hacksaw. You know, and Tim were... picked sound mixing. I hacksaw. I thought I did, but I guess I picked sound editing. I picked sound editing. Okay, too. yeah, I went with you on that. Um, thanks, Chris. Uh, <laughs> so yeah there was a lot of things that i actually got right that like i never would have gotten right and then i got huge things wrong like best picture and actor yeah the there's another thing sag best actor combo mm-hmm. uh you know the last time the sag winner lost what was it uh probably george clooney or not george clooney i'm so sorry um Johnny viola Depp. davis when she won uh, for the help specifically best actor though. oh yeah, you'd have uh, to go away. I think back. you have to go back to Johnny Depp for yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean, which is a weird win. Which was an anomaly. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, nobody thought he would really win the Oscar for that. So that happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that should be the name of the podcast this week. <laughs> so that so happened. So that happened. What else? Uh, you know, I, I personally am a little annoyed about the uh, foreign film situation. 
So you really think people voted as a protest? I know, I, I know there are people that think that movie's great and think, oh, well, it just won on its own, whatever. Uh, there are also people who don't think it's great, who think it's Asgard's weakest film so far. Yeah, um, it wouldn't have been my pick, but he still is the biggest quote-unquote name he is, in that group. But I just think no one's talking about that statement, obviously, but for other reasons. And it just it seemed like a statement, quote-unquote, that wasn't going to get much further than the steps of the theater. Mm-hmm. Like, it just seemed like... You should make an honest decision, I think, mm-hmm. about what you think the best film is. Not giving a guy who's in London who can't make a statement on his own, who granted sent uh, uh, very important people. Yeah, who was the woman? She I was, was the first Iranian this. in space, I think. Yeah, it's Which crazy. It's great. It's a great story in itself, but it's just, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where being overtly political with awards... It doesn't settle right with me. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even know how to explain what I mean. I genuinely think that most people who voted for the salesman really picked the salesman. Okay. Would have picked it otherwise. But, and you know, I'm, I, who knows who even saw, like. Well, I know Tony Erdman, there weren't fan, there weren't many fans left of that. Like, there were a lot of fans of the last 90 minutes. Yeah. If yeah. they got there. <laughs> I know a lot of people walked out of that and just, just, it, it takes it a while for that movie to catch its stride, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think my, my pick probably would have been Man Called Ove. Man Called Ove, yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought was going to happen. I think in the old system, you know, before they sent the movies to everyone and opened the voting to everyone, that probably would have won. Mm-hmm. But so str- it's still strange to me Elle wasn't nominated in that category. Right. I'm, it's still strange to me people thought Isabel Huppert was going to win Best Actress. Me too, but um, I've said that about other people who then went on to win, so I'll just <laughs> shut my mouth. I just – I didn't think that was ever in the cards. I, it was great to see her at the Oscars though. Um, Somebody was like saying – making sort of making fun of uh, – uh, people at an after party saying like, "Oh, this person thought you know La La Land was going to sweep," and I was like, "Yeah, so did I." <laughs> like, that's Wasn't not that a crazy weird of a thing to expect yeah. <laughs> after fourteen nominations. By the way, six wins, not too shabby. Absolutely, that's um, another thing that's sort of getting buried in all this. Is what that, do you think happened, by the way? What do you mean with La La Land not winning? Um, I don't know. I mean, like, uh, do you think the backlash affected it? I think it's like there's this combination of stuff, and I don't think you can legitimately say it was any one thing. All you can yeah. really say is Moonlight won Best Picture, and that's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, really, on so many levels. But the it's different amazing. things that like you can look at are a yes, there was a backlash. Why was there a backlash? Well, then you look at 14 nominations. Mm-hmm. I think even those of us who love La La Land extremely don't think it really would be in that pantheon per se. That's interesting to me because I think it's way better than Titanic, which. I know that's well, which. By the way, I was watching Saturday Night. I love the movie, and yeah. I and I, and I, pro- I probably like it more than All About Eve. By the way, like I'm not a big All About Eve fan. Everyone's like <gasps> clutching their pearls, oh, pearls right pearls, now. Yes. My pearls <laughs> actually. Wait, I dropped my monocle. But just some some of the you know it's 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 a little more modest in its various pieces than yeah. And you shouldn't that. fault a film because of based well, on its success. That's, that's yeah. absolutely true. But I think that maybe that is part of what happened. Like suddenly it got a little too big. Uh, I think uh, we love to lift things up and then tear them yeah, down. Yeah, we do. Yes, and there's also obviously the <clears throat> the entire mood of the country changed in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nominations were in like right after Trump was inaugurated. I think. Yeah, sounds about right. So, you know, reality set in in that yeah. moment, and you know, it's. It's also there's something Moonlight to be said. To this. Yeah, there's also something to be said. I mean, we did. There's a lot of change in membership, mm-hmm. um, and there's something to be said for Moonlight was the movie that I don't think anyone hated. True, but at the same time, I feel like you can't make the argument that La La Land was divisive because it won a preferential ballot at PGA. Right. So, again, I'm not going to predict anything next year. <laughs> I'm done with that. Are you whole on record? Game. I'm on like, record. As long as I can get away with it, I'm legitimate, legitimately yeah. serious about that. Like, look. Why bother until, like, mm-hmm. right before the nominations? Well, I, yeah, I didn't want to predict anything until SAG came out because I really – it was so close to call between Casey and Denzel for me. Yeah. You know? And then – so I was like, I'll go with the SAG winner. And, well, that was wrong. Yeah. So. I was happy for Casey. He looked relieved after a very long I know. I mean, it is – And obviously a lot of uh, – It is know, the culmination of this going months on the, of mm-hmm. work and, yeah. Uh, very happy for Kenneth Lonergan. I held his Oscar at the uh, Amazon after party, which was only the second Oscar I've held. Who was the first? Birdman, uh, Chivo's. 
oh, cinematography Oscar. Well, I am just an Oscar slut because you held all of his Oscars. Yeah, I did. No, the first <laughs> the first Oscar I ever held. This is so random. Was Walton Goggins? Mm. I was doing an interview at his Wait, place. What? He has an Oscar for short film, a short film called Six like Shooter. I think the Accountant. The oh, the Accountant. Yeah. Yes, which is a very good little film. Not, Shit, I forgot no. that. Yes. And I was I was That's at his weird. house doing an interview, and I was like, "What? You have an Oscar?" Or as Joel McHale calls it, because it's for a short film, a daytime Oscar. <laughs> um, and then obviously, um, I think Spike Jones. I held his one year, um, which he didn't seem to like too much. And um, then uh, I had uh, Inaritus. We did a shoot yeah, with him the day after, shoot. so yeah. I had all yeah, three, three of his, yeah. and I was trying to look like really bored, like ugh, whatever. Yeah. And um, yeah, then last year Chivo brought all three of his to his shoot, and then last, um, I guess su- Sunday night I was leaving, and Justin Hurwitz was entering, and he asked if I wanted to hold them and get a picture, and there was, and I said something like, um, "I was like, oh, I don't know, is that kind of ostentatious?" Oh, okay. So <laughs> Justin actually took a photo of me holding his Oscars, and then all these people started gathering around and taking photos of me. Because they wanted photos of the Oscars. And I was like, there's going to be I, all these photos of like, who's this person? That I know. Won? I kept saying, I was like, he, he's these actually belong. Did to she him. have her Oscars mailed to her? What's going on? <laughs> I feel weird about uh, holding Oscars. Well, it, it is strange. Like you got to do it at least it's only, once. It if only you have the chance. It's only ever happened when someone's literally like here, like yeah. held it out. Like Chivo was like, here, check it out, and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And you know, Casey like handed me Kenneth Lonergan's Oscar. I was like, oh fuck, okay. Wow, this is awesome. They're heavier than They're I expected. Heavy and you, I just, I, I, yeah. Yeah, my feeling is you won this. This is yours. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't really yes. feel like I should be touching it. But they do. But, like, I think people who win them get it. Like, I remember backstage at the Golden Globes, my friend who had just won a Golden Globe was like, here, hold it. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, this feels weird. Like, yeah. oh, okay. Yeah. You know, and then you have to get the obligatory photo. And yeah. Like, I didn't, uh, we, we, we uh, were fortunate to have both Damien Chazelle and Barry Jenkins on our cover this week. I didn't, uh, Touch their Oscars at the shoot. Oh, do they bring them? Yeah, of course. Oh, that's so you know, cool. For the yeah. photos and whatnot. And uh, really just, I was happy we were able to do that story because it's it was such an interesting moment of mm-hmm. seeing these two groups of people who legitimately love each other. Yeah. Like going way back to Telluride when they all met, uh, these movies premiered two days apart. You know, La La Land premiered in Venice and on the 31st of August. Two days later, Moonlight premiered in Telluride. And uh, they've just been on the circuit the whole time, and they had to endure this snafu together. And Jordan Horowitz, producer of La La Land, just handled it like a champ. He showed what a great producer he is because nobody was doing anything, and he stepped up. He said, There's a mistake. Grabbed. I saw some people on Twitter were angry that he snatched the card from Warren Beatty. I was like, "Go back and look at Warren Beatty's face after he does that." Yeah, he's not mad at all. He is not. He's mad like, at all. he's, like, like, he's like, yeah, God. this guy is handling. Yes, it. like it, it was. Uh, and he said, "You know, I'm going to be proud to hand this to my my friends." At yeah, my, which and, was so beautiful. And and that's yeah. the truth. And that's why you know seeing these two come together for that shoot and that story was really awesome and uh it's such an awesome mutual admiration society yes. it really is yeah and it's, and it's not like you know i know a lot of people like pretend to like each other on the campaign trail mm-hmm. but they genuinely like they've had to spend so much time together yeah they love each other's movies it's it's really really actually kind of heartwarming and when we did the interview they had not seen each other at the parties or anything they finally that morning were mm-hmm. able to compare notes and like what was it like for you what was like you know these two guys we're going to be seeing their work for a long exactly. time. Exactly. They're going to be back so they're, many they're times. A, they're a part of, I think, a very exciting new generation of mm-hmm. filmmakers. And, I mean, this is this is the thing. Like, all throughout the year with the backlash and stuff, it's like the, those of us who are like, we love both of these movies. Yeah. And it's kind of like <laughs> that snafu allowed that moment to be seen. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not saying this well, but it's just... Use your words. And use your words, Chris. It's just great to see them both come together in it this was, weird was moment. And it's like the way Barry put it to me, it was messy, but it was gorgeous. It really was. I mean, and, you know, yeah, I wish it hadn't gone down that way. I mm-hmm. wish that, you know, it had been this pure moment for Moonlight. Yeah. But it's it's weirdly sort of appropriate. And I know this has been mentioned at least on Twitter, but like – uh, I, I think the funniest tweet I saw was like, hey, La La Land, remember when you gave us a glimpse of a happy ending and then tore it away? Yeah, How does it feel? You know, has like it was weirdly appropriate. It's like a current Sadal Creek bridge. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, you went back for that. <laughs> I'm yeah. surprised no one's like – I just thought about that yesterday. I was like, it's yeah. kind of like a more romantic version of the movie. Yes, a happy, like a, the happy ending. Spoiler alert, back. if you've had 60 years to see a current Sadal yeah, Creek bridge and have it. Yeah, you need to get on that. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, uh, but yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is we, those of us who do this, we know what these two teams think about each other. Mm-hmm. But that moment allowed the world to see what these two teams think about each other. And I thought that was really great. Yeah. You know. And that's not necessarily normal either because. Absolutely. You know, there, there's. This is a cutthroat thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know. So, uh, gosh, what else is there to say? Uh, this is the. Did you like the show overall? Not really. See, I really did. I th- thought Jimmy was like a little tone deaf. Like I thought holding up the kid from Lion, yeah, with uh, the the Lion King music. Yeah, I don't know that something every felt tone deaf worked. about that. Yeah, I don't want to say racist because that's a little but you extreme. Just but <laughs> it felt a little weird. And you know, making fun of all the foreign sounding names. It's just yeah, like, that was definitely look, tone deaf. Bob Hope. Yeah. Like uh, let's <laughs> let's dial it back a bit. Um, I, some people don't are like over the Jimmy Kimmel Matt Damon feud. I still think it's one of the funniest things ever. It's funny, but it's chafing. Sure, maybe it, it shouldn't have been. <laughs> and that was how it was supposed tonight. to end. Did you hear that? Yes, it was supposed to end with uh, Jimmy sitting next to Matt Damon. I assume saying something like "Ha ha, you lost." Yeah, exactly. But uh, nope, he had to be on stage fumbling <laughs> with the rest of them. No, I didn't. I didn't love the show. I did like the open with Justin Timberlake. Mm-hmm. Some, people, some people were saying this isn't the Grammys. It's like whatever. What I I, I hate Twitter. Yes. when when the Oscars is going yes. on, I, I hate. I Twitter. love and hate it because there's some well, funny stuff out there. You get to see a lot of id mm-hmm. <laughs> at that time. But I, I I you know I love that song. Um, so what? <laughs> you were singing it earlier before we turned on the microphones. It. When I sing that song to my son, he, he smiles so big. Aww. So how could I not like that song? And I thought it was great coming through the crowd and everything. You know, it was. Were you? Um, you went to the Independent Spirit Awards, right? Yeah. Um, I watched from home, which seems to be my new milieu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I thought it was a very risky but absolutely hilarious bit where Andy Samberg did the. I didn't like that. You didn't see. I wondered the how Pearl it played Jam in thing. the room. Because he came out as Eddie Vedder and saying, I'm still alive, instead of an in-memoriam segment, yeah. they showed people who were still alive. And I want, I mean, like, it was very risky, and I wondered how it played in the room. I, I thought it was hilarious. I didn't really but... notice how it played, because at the same time, that news was breaking about Greg P. Russell having his sound nomination oh, rescinded. God, yes. Uh, the Academy embarrassing a 30-year guy. Yeah publicly when they could have dealt with this quietly and uh, and embarrassing him for what on top of which embarrassing him for something that everyone, everyone does. does yeah like i hope they don't stop with that they, they better go rescind every miramax best picture nomination mm-hmm. uh it, it's that was utter bullshit and uh and then compounded with the academies you know with the screw up at the oscars and not a great year even though they've you know this diversity stuff was was nice uh the Academy's had a rough year. Yeah. <laughs> and they have some changes to make, I think. I hope they make them. So will you be running for Academy president? No. Is that God, is no. your platform to announce that? Nope. <laughs> Chris Fitzpatrick should run. I don't know who that is. <laughs> uh, if, if you understood that reference, y- you know why that's awesome. I'm going to have to saying Google that to it now the, uh, or are you going to tell us? I'm saying that to the, uh, to the audience. It's, it's the <laughs> SNL sketch that uh, – uh, what's his name? Kyle Mooney does – where he's running for class president, and it's like oh, all the 90s. It's, okay. it's one of my favorite sketches from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and I'm so tired that I'm just rambling at this point. This is the last show of season one of Playback. But you have what I think should be an Oscar-nominated movie on the show this week. I do. Who is it? James Mangold from Logan. <laughs> I was going to let you say it because you wanted to talk about Logan so Oh, bad. my God. I loved Logan so much. I it's mean, awesome. Uh, you know, I don't know if I can say it's the best X-Men movie because it's so different. From yeah, I wouldn't X-Men even call movies. it an X-Men movie. Yeah. It's yeah. a Western. But it is. It's a straight up Western. I, I am not kidding. I am being completely serious when I say Patrick Stewart should be up for Oscar consideration. He's yeah. so fantastic in Logan. Um, don't take your kids. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hard R. kids, but. Hard or I'm letting the listeners. Know. Just to spite you, I'm going to have children and, and take, take them, them to, Logan. to Logan this week. I did suggest at the beginning of this podcast, uh, way back in September, that everyone take their kids to Sausage Party. So maybe I should close <laughs> by saying, take your kids to Logan. It's so fantastic. It's a blood fest, but so it is fantastic. it is really good. And uh, really we have some. I, we I'm not even kidding. We have movies that I think will be in the Oscar conversation next year coming up this month. We have Logan. We have Beauty and mm-hmm, the Beast mm-hmm. in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So look, we're already back. Let's start making those <laughs> Slow predictions. Slow down. I need a vacation. <laughs> but yeah, th- I think this has been a great run of shows here. So thanks for being here with me. Sure thing. Week in and week out. And uh, yeah, stay tuned for James Mangold right after this. 
ourselves an X-Men fan. Maybe a quarter of it happened. And not like this. In the real world, people die. Logan. I don't want to talk about it. Logan. Just stop. Be careful. I need the girl. What girl? Go get her. No. And we're down. She's like you. Very much like you. I am not whatever it is you think I am. She needs our help. Someone come along. Someone has come along. This is what life looks like. People who love each other. A home. You should take a moment. Feel it. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with the director of Logan, James Mangold. Thanks for doing the show, man. Really appreciate well, it's it. It's good to be here. I'm glad we could make it happen. Um, you, we were just talking about all the travel you've been doing for this movie. Yeah, we've done the kind of whirlwind um, of, uh, well, I was in Germany for the for the Berlin Film Festival where mm-hmm. we kind of had our premiere, mm-hmm. then went to London, um, and then did two stints in New York before and after London, and now I'm back in L.A. doing this. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those movies. Uh, they want but we you only, everywhere for it. <laughs> we only finished. We only finished the movie about two and a half weeks ago. So it's kind of that's more of the feeling of whirlwind. That must have been the day before I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Practically, which, by the way, the movie is awesome in a word. Oh, thank you. Uh, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about it in a minute. But I was just thinking, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about what everyone's thinking about this week. Did you watch the Oscars? Um, I did. I did. Wow. Right. <laughs> wow. I guess. Wow. I mean, it's a wow. But the, the, the thing for me that's odd is I was already at that point in the evening starting to kind of tune out. Mm-hmm. But the, partly just for me, because um, however sacrosanct uh, it is for me, the I don't really care who wins. Um, sure. the, it's the, 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 the every one of those movies is brilliant. Um, in its own way and the you know whenever anyone says to me name your five favorite westerns I like freeze whenever it says name the best three movies you saw this year I freeze meaning I the kind of the 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 reality show of picking the best Mm -hmm. and having a discussion with someone like why Moonlight or La La Land is better than one is better than the other seems ludicrous on his face to even I love both yes me too like so that so literally I got to see I got to see both wonderful realities played out kind of yeah (laughs) that's true never seen anything like that in my life no but it is I mean obviously it's more of a train wreck in the sense of stage managing but the um, but my in, in a way I see more pain for all the people who are made mistakes and had it happen yeah. than anything yeah. delicious to talk about. It kind of seems more like just like, ugh, what a nightmare. Well, luckily, too, I mean, we've got both of those directors on our cover this week, and uh, they're friends. They yeah. love each other. The two camps love each other. And it's uh, it was an interesting moment and kind of a lovely moment in a weird way because so, they were both on that stage and everybody's hugging. So anyway. It was. It, messy is good. You know, yeah. um, in, in the world of what I do, you know, you, you, you hope something gets as sloppy and revealing as, as a moment like that. Yeah. Well, this movie, Logan, uh, it, it's a hard R. Hard R rating, obviously. Viciously violent. Lots of colorful language. Which, as I'm watching it, I'm wondering, okay, how did he defend these decisions to the studio? Because this is a big IP character for them, even right down to the title. I mean, it's, it doesn't have Wolverine in the title. It's Logan. Uh, well, you've got like three or four good questions in those <laughs> senses. Um, the first thing I'd say is that I never had to defend the decision to go R that much. Um, Hugh and I were pretty definitive in a pact we made with each other about wanting the tone to change and wanting to do something different um, 
if only for selfish reasons, um, in my case, um, I, uh, Hugh very much wanted to give fans what they have been waiting for in terms of um, physical um, the, the display of the berserker rage in all its bloody glory. Mm-hmm. Um, my interest in the R rating, though, was much bigger than just salty language and violence, um, both of which I thought would be really helpful to take the movie to a new place. But it was also something else, which is that um, if you can get a studio to agree to an R rating in advance of a movie's release, particularly a tentpole picture like this, um, there's a couple things that happen, the obvious being the freedom to do um, things that you couldn't do in a PG-13 or PG film. But there's another thing that happens, which is that the marketing and distribution wings of the studio have to come to terms with the fact that the movie is not going to be marketed to children and, of course, can't be and um, because it's not for children. And the second that idea, that concept, is swallowed by the studio – you go from being a four-box movie to essentially, I guess, a two-box movie. And what does that do to you as a screenwriter? Um, I wrote the story for this movie and co-wrote the script with Scott Frank and Michael Green. And um, suddenly we're writing. And we're no longer having to worry. You know, one of the first scenes I wrote early on was the first scene between uh, Patrick Stewart and, and Hugh Jackman um, when, Hugh, when we first meet Patrick um, in a kind of startling new condition. Um, living inside this tipped water tower in the Mexican desert. And um, it's a six- to seven-page scene. Um, you can't write a movie that is for 11-year-olds with a six- to seven-page emotional dialogue scene between two middle-aged or twilight-aged men. Mm-hmm. And the um, the freedom to make a movie for grown-ups without worrying about the film as a platform for merchandising tie-ins or Happy Meals or... Or the short, or having to resort to kind of, or deal with the short attention span, theater tempo of cutting, or making sure the ideas are digestible by children for children. Um, it's a, that's a more wholesale change, um, and in a way helped as an antidote or kind of um, uh, to the violence. Meaning that instead of the violence feeling sophomoric, I hoped that it would actually feel. Um, Unfiltered, mm-hmm. um, just a kind of vis. Uh, uh, it's a, not a numbing violence. It's like you feel the the, the repercussions of what's going on. Well, here that was the well. important yeah. thing to me. I didn't want to do. You know, when people talk about the movie and will refer to it and kind of uh, talk about the brutal action, my only anxiety about it all in the film, and there was some care made to play both ends, meaning to play into the operatic nature of Wolverine's rage, but to also show something that you don't see even in PG films, I feel, um, which is that violence has consequences and characters die. Mm-hmm. People, you whether it's um, uh, supporting characters or your principal characters, people you've come to love, people you know, people who have lives, personalities, and a soul die. I think that what's interesting you know, is that in a lot of films that we even rate on a level that are uh, supposedly appropriate for children, there's mass killings going on. It's just that they're a little less red mm-hmm. and wet, mm-hmm. and you don't get to know the people falling. It's just kind of uh, shadow play of bodies tumbling and under rolling buses and crumbling buildings. But the 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 body count is probably uh, high multiples of ours, and yeah. yet. So the interesting question for me always becomes what's more, in a way, traumatizing for our culture, showing mass killings that have no effect or showing mass killings that at least feel legitimately traumatizing. Yeah, and that idea of of, uh, the violence with the repercussions, I mean, that's sort of crystallized as well in this dialogue you take from Shane that you use in the film. Well, it's 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 central to the entire story of this character as Mm -hmm. well. Um, I mean, for those who aren't X-Men fans... Um, one thing has been essentially true about Logan through his comic book history and movie history, which is that he's carrying a ton of shame on mm-hmm. his back about dark deeds he committed when he was younger and called Weapon X in his incarnation as a kind of um, – When drug, he was a gunslinger. He was, well, he was a drug-pumped so drug uh, killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, but in the metaphor of the Western, yeah. he, was a, he was a gunslinger and um, and – um, and a lot of people were hurt, and they weren't all 
um, in a, they weren't all guilty mm-hmm. in some way. It wasn't always the justified death, if you will. And the, um, I think that that's something that's been played with throughout, um, as I said, comic book uh, history with this character and in the movies. But the the idea for me of coming of this character coming to terms um, with his life um, in a final film seemed to me necessary to find some way to go deeper into his own odd um, relationship with violence. When did this kind of conceit, uh, because it is, it does have the, the DNA of a Western, uh, when did that, did you go into it with that conceit in mind or did it develop as you developed the project? Like, I'm, some I'm curious come, about that. Some of, some of that comes along with just me, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, my second film, Copland, which by all outward appearances, is a kind of uh, Sidney Lumet-esque, New Jersey kind of Peyton Place cop movie, Mm -hmm. uh, was very much structured, actually built on 310 Yuma, Mm -hmm. the idea of this kind of weakened male in the center of this town of gunslingers who is called upon to kind of find the reserves to stand up to this um, gun-slinging bunch of corruption around him. Mm-hmm. Um, the That's all very much um, was hugely Western-influenced, and in fact, that movie ends in a giant gunfight. Yeah. Um, the um, But a gunfight not like you'd see in uh, Heat, but mm-hmm. one more like one you'd see in High Noon. Yeah. And um, uh, the Westerns had a powerful effect on me, Um I I couldn't completely explain why, but I, in I'm kind of a, a a classicist. I mean, I'm not. I'm I I, I am from the same generation um, that a, a host of really talented kind of postmodern directors have come from. Probably the leader of all of them would be Quentin, and I'm a huge fan of his work. But I couldn't do anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like it's not the whole. Uh, uh, there's something I'm always looking for something very earnest I miss I miss amid all the really wonderful films made along the lines I was just describing I miss movies that mean it mm-hmm. that have something to say that uh, have a kind of gravity to them and are unashamed I, it's in this kind of most sardonic of ages it's almost gotten um, uncool to actually represent a true feeling mm-hmm. um, that without quotes around it or, or a snicker and that that's something the Western for me embodies um, and has always offered kind of uh, guidance on. Um, yeah. If for listeners who are hearing me describe, you know, Logan's backstory, it's kind of very logical if you think about movies like Shane or Unforgiven or uh, Pale Rider or uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. There's a lot of movies that in which the kind of uh, bones, the lineage, um, really lend themselves to considering um, to considering how you might be able to use some of those structures in a modern superhero movie. Yeah, it, it fits like a glove, really. Since we're actually on the the topic of the genre, I'll, I'll skip ahead a bit. Um, you know, obviously, you did. Your own version of 310 to Yuma, which is 10 years ago, if you can believe it. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> we had Ben Foster on the show a few weeks ago. He's so incredible. He is. Um, he's a monumental acting talent. Yeah. And a great guy. And Indeed. And and uh, what was I going to ask you about the Westerns? Let me flip my page because, like I said, I'm jumping ahead. Oh, well, yeah, just the climate of that genre in Hollywood. Uh, I was on the set of one a few months ago that Ben actually was shooting. And there were a couple going on in the area. That must be the one with Christian and, and yep. yeah, yeah, hostiles. Um, the uh, just is there is there a sense that there's an interest in making westerns in Hollywood, or is it is it difficult to get them off the ground for any reason? I'm just I'm always curious. Those who've worked in the genre, I think there's a lot of reigning assumptions, but but I think a lot of the assumptions have, have gone out the window in the last few years, um, or that um, or to put it differently, I think studios are not sure if any of the things they thought were true eight years ago are still true. Um, More than just a convulsion in our political scene happened last year. I think there was a convulsion on all levels of just what it is, um, what it is movies need to be, what they need to become, um, whether the, the, and I think it's a very logical one. Like if you look at movie history, there was a period not unlike this one where movies where television was suddenly king and movies became all about spectacle. 
and you came out to the theater to see giant size Todd A.O. Cinerama spectacle. 3D, of course, was born in this period. And um, movies were trying to justify the theater experience with with all these um, immersive technologies. Um, and, um, and it produced a lot more um, big scale, very often a lot of mediocre productions um, than more intimate fare and dramatic fare, which seemed to be more thriving on the small screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in some ways we've entered another period where that's been true, where there's uh, a lot of, uh, it's also affected by CG spectacles, comic book movies, other things have, have come to the fore in a way that we're in the 50s and 60s, but that it's it's gotten to where the mainstay of theatrical movies for the last period have been giant, giant movies that are a theatrical experience that either promise you 3D or just a kind of big IMAX experience. Um, but something has happened along with that. I have no problem with that, but something's happened along with it. That is that the the calculation in the scripting and design of these movies has gotten a little repetitive, mm-hmm. probably as it happened in the 50s and 60s as well. And that that just as a creative person, I, and I don't think I'm alone in this, you're just looking for a way, and I think the studios are too, to just shake things up because everyone feels um, that there's a certain amount of exhaustion setting in with these movies as they in, in the way they've been made, even some quite excellent, but just... Just we can't keep doing the same movie over mm-hmm. and over again. I hope we get more in that genre because you know it's, it's, it doesn't seem like it's on life support or anything. Well, people are but, frightened you know. of period. You know, people yeah. are frightened of period, and they're frightened that that um, that that the public is going to have a hard time figuring out how to access into it. I think the beauty of the western. Um, for those that do love it, is just simply is its simplicity. It's mm-hmm. not the period. It isn't. Uh, it isn't in this in the same way a period piece. Uh, it's really a kind of uh, fantastical universe that's hardly historically accurate in most cases, and more a kind of fever dream of the American moment when the industrial revolution kind of swept across the country and the age of the outlaws and the wild lands and the homesteaders um, came to an end and the train connected the east and west coasts it's kind of a magical moment that really in historical sense only existed maybe five years but has become the canvas for countless movies because i think it so represents and contains the american dream and the the yearning for freedom at the same time as our sense of um being part of of something much larger yeah Uh, i know you said you freeze but what's your favorite western (laughs) I'll tell you mine. I'll go first. Okay. Once upon a time in the West. Yeah. Well, that's easy for me if you would give have me say ten of them. But the, <laughs> is that? But then there's these like really weird Claudia Cardinal, Jason Robards cutaways where I'm like my head just hits a plate. I'm like uh, so. But if you talk about the best last ten minutes in a, in a western, uh, the that that gunfight between uh, uh, Charles Bronson and 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 Henry Fonda and Morricone's music and. The flashback and the summation of all that's, that's what come, I love. The, the, that the sequence, structure and everything. That, that is a brilliant, brilliant um, uh, film. I mean, I, Shane to me remains a kind of touchstone because of its tremendous beauty, um, the, na- the the sophistication of the acting. Um, you know, the I mean, just think about this this movie where where Gene Arthur is 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 you know the loyal wife to Van Heflin in, in this in, in their homesteaders plot of land but when Shane arrives you feel her uh fall in love with Shane and you feel Shane fall in love with her they never touch each other they hardly look at each other um but what is always most interesting to me in that film is the beautiful work also Van Heflin does where you feel his own awareness that he's lost his wife's admiration to mm-hmm. this strange, dark gunslinger who's sleeping in their barn. And um, and yet, instead of lashing out or berating her, his response is a kind of beautiful sense of understanding that he has been so compromised by the struggles they've gone through that he almost can't blame her for admiring the kind of idealistic and the strength and idealism of this hero who's entered their midst yeah. and um, there's so many complicated themes and of course the child um, uh, that beautiful performance of that child who is um, who falls in love also with a surrogate mm-hmm. um, father in mm-hmm. Shane 
I, I used a lot of yeah, Brandon DeWild. I um, I used a lot of that, a lot of those ideas, even in Three Ten Yuma. I mean, mm-hmm. Logan Lerman's character kind of falls more in love with Russell Crowe's, and mm-hmm. is kind of completely disillusioned with 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 Christian. In many ways, uh, my Three Ten Yuma is a bit of a kind of hybrid of Shane and. Um, and and three the original three ten great scenery up there too in the Tetons obviously absolutely Peaks and and one of the first uh, films where they hold those huge Technicolor cameras out into the wild mm-hmm. and you really feel it definitely uh, going back to Logan and, and this character Wolverine let's talk about that the title uh, was that something you had to defend was that a difficult thing that, to get through uh, interesting you're asking about that Chris because that was the biggest um, negotiation. Of the entire picture, the um, the in some way or another, and I still pinch myself and can't quite believe we got the movie through without any struggle. But the rated R, the the script that we wrote, the kind of story, the tone, we had no issues when dailies were coming out. We had no concerned visits to the set. We had nothing but encouragement. Um, I think there was an opportunity for things to go awry when we, you know, showed the film to test audiences because the question was going to be, does this alchemy of of kind of rated R violence and adult themes marry to an audience's expectations of a Wolverine movie? And the response was so enthusiastic from the audiences we screened it for that that hurdle was passed without a blip from either side getting nervous. But the title was something I had to push very hard. Um, and ultimately, Stacy made the call and and uh, and backed me on the idea of separating us. However counterintuitive Stacey it was. Snyder. Yeah, Stacy yeah. Snyder, chairman. Um, however counterintuitive, counterintuitive it was to actually divorce yourself from the known brand being Wolverine or X-Men. I mean, certainly, you know, the first Wolverine movie couldn't let go of either brand. It was mm-hmm. like Wolverine, semicolon, X-Men. <laughs> Wolverine origins. and the X-Men. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was literally as if, I hate those kind of titles. Uh, the um, And frankly we were in a bit of a quandary because what do you call this there was a movie called Wolverine Origins X-Men whatever and then there was The Wolverine which is the last one I made and then this one will will this been The Wolverine 2 or Wolverine 3 or Wolverine 3 The Happening or Wolverine 3 The Great Ride I mean what would you every one of those things becomes these I mean they sound like some Herman Woke novel I'm like I'm like what why do they have these ponderous eight word titles and um, a lot of it has to do with this idea of holding the movies together, um, whether you call it a universe or it's the box set of DVDs to come out later, some kind of unifying, unifying branding that holds all the movies together, which for whatever perverse reasons I am extremely resistant to. <laughs> I really don't want my movie held together um, with anything else, even my last movie, meaning I just there's some kind of, again, it's my own puritanical way of looking at telling a story with a beginning, middle, and an end is that that's my job. My job is not to make a platform for selling the next movie. My job is not to make a platform to connecting to other movies. My job is to tell a good story within the confines of the of the of the Fox logo and the end credits and and um, that you feel satisfied by, hopefully. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect title. I mean, it, it grounds everything, and it's... And it signals to... Uh, what was most important, I think, won the day with Stacy Snyder when she was considering what to do, was I think that what was most important to me was to get folks like yourself and, of course, the public ready for a different movie. Yeah. If we called it the same thing or kind of just added a new digit after The Wolverine, I had a great fear that we would not be signaling with a sense of continuity and unanimity what that we were making something different we were doing something different um uh, in tone yeah. and 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 in who the audience who we were aiming at for audience <clears throat> with the wolverine uh did you feel like you made the movie you wanted to make there uh, and i only ask just because this movie is so different it feels like you were doing stuff here that maybe you wish you could have done on the other movie or something like that. I, I can't. I For for anything that anyone – I'm very fond of the last Wolverine movie I made. And I, I always viewed it as a kind of fever dream of Japanese cinema and um, samurai pictures, Hong Kong crime pictures. Um, but 
I did feel like it got uh, more, quote, comic booky in the third act than what we did in the first two acts. And certainly this was a previous regime at Fox. They were more worried about my first two acts than the third. Um, but I think that I have to own what works or doesn't work for people in my movies. And I think that I, um, I too, it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's very hard to do it different. When, when there are these all these default settings for a genre or an idea. Um, the idea of needing a really big um, CG spectacular in the third act is a, is, is a very difficult uh, pressure to resist. And it's not like it's coming from one person or they're demanding something. It's, it's a kind of snap-to-grid where it's just like everyone's doing it. I guess this is what you got to do. And... Um, it wasn't until I had gotten to the end of that process on that movie that I came to terms in my for my own self with what I loved most about the previous film, and and it was actually the the front end, the kind of the this kind of uh, uh, noir Japanese noir with with Logan in it, and um, and what I went about doing because I entered that movie. Uh, midstream, meaning there was already a script by Chris McQuarrie when I came on, and then Scott Frank and I worked on it, and um, but the and, and and all of it was based on a pre-existing uh, Wolverine narrative about his journey to Japan and falling in love with Mariko and mm-hmm. um, facing these foes there. But the for me with this movie, the difference was it was like me writing Copland or Girl Interrupted or Walk the Line or whatever it was. I started with a blank page. Mm-hmm. Um, when it And from absolute zero, I went about trying to construct a movie that even if I was making just a movie on my own about characters that were not Marvel icons or superheroes, this was an interesting story to tell about a man caring for an ailing father upon whose doorstep arrives a daughter he won't accept paternity for and someone's chasing her and forces them all out of their comfortable place and onto the road where they're fighting for their lives and that that could easily be a movie that you'd make without claws or mutant powers at all, which in a sense to me is a better definition of how to find a story than the other way around, than building your story around around um, their powers. Yeah. What about visual ideas? Because uh, I love those first two acts of The Wolverine very much as well. And uh, and I also note some imagery from the Frank Miller stuff in there that's really cool, like especially you know, those arrows and stuff going into the third act. But uh, with Logan, uh, I'm not as a comic book reader, as familiar with the newer stuff that has this young character in it and stuff and things like that. But I'm just curious if there were any graphic uh, references, reference points for you at all or anything like that. I kind of let go of that. I kind of gave myself a a prescription to do something original. Um, All these things are in my head. I mean, the biggest influence I'd say visually in a general way was, was old man Logan and, um, not from a story point of view as much. We didn't do that story. We couldn't from a, a character a legal point of view. We didn't have rights to a lot of the characters in that comic book. Mm-hmm. But from a vibe, uh, a look, um, that was a lot of what we did. Um, and it was a very big inspiration in terms of setting a tone. And I think as much as you could credit Deadpool and the changing marketplace and uh, studios understanding that that the world is changing for these movies and we have to keep changing with it, I think that Old Man Logan provided a kind of legitimacy for reimagining the world of, of Wolverine in a very different environment and place. But I really tried in every way to... Uh, how would I say this? I, that I felt like the best way I could serve the fans would be to ignore it all mm-hmm. and just make my movie, meaning make a movie the best I could make a film, um, come what may, to tell a story about these characters in this world in the same way when you bring up Frank Miller, he did, meaning mm-hmm. that 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 um, that the story of the evolution of comic books is not a story of universe building and continuity as much as it's a story of shattering changes 
being made every eight years or so in these in these different storylines. Superman doesn't look the same as he did in 1941, and Batman doesn't look the same as when Bob Kane created him, mm-hmm. and um, Neil Gaiman certainly did different things with the Sandman than what he was doing in the DC Universe earlier, and I could go on and on. Yeah. Um, that the quest for kind of unity and an unbroken style within a comic book movie series is more, I think, about, again, that that perverse need to make a kind of box set or a never-ending, unspliceable, nine-hour version of one of these sagas. And I think that's the enemy of good filmmaking in a way. I think that taking a director and saying, okay, I want you to dream, but when you get in this bed and dream, don't move the pillows and don't touch the covers. And, And it's like, okay... (laughs) <laughs> and so you sit very stiff and and intimidated in this bed trying to do your best work, but knowing there's 90 things you can't do that you would do because someone's going to get pissed off at you. And um, a little bit when you asked me about the last movie, um, I dipped my toe in the world. Of, you know, it was a trauma just to get uh, his hair approved, different <laughs> than the flock of seagulls look. Right. That was a monumental amount of negotiation. And... Um, uh, I fought as many battles as I could, but but um, with this movie, I tried to kind of get the battles resolved before we even started. I'm running out of time with you, but I did want to mention uh, Night and Day got a raw deal. That movie's awesome. I Thank think it's you. Awesome. Uh, I think Tom is incredible. He's amazing. In that it's movie. everything that he's so great at. All of his charisma, all of his timing. I think I think two things happened in that movie. One is it was called Wichita. And we wrote it and we shot it, calling Wichita. And God loved Tom Rothman, but he became convinced uh, that uh, uh, that uh, as did Jim G. That that uh, that um, the name Wichita in Asia would be. They won't know what it means. They'll call it Wichita. <laughs> and uh, and we we're like, it's just a cool title. And. Um, and it was about where the story began and mm-hmm. then went around the world from there. But but the story about it is, of course, that they then came up with some market-tested title, Night and Day, which sounded like just the worst 80s <laughs> comedy title ever attached to a film. And, um, and, of course, Night and Day means nothing in most of Europe and Asia as well because the pun with the K in the end means nothing in another language. So the right. whole argument was... Uh, all I can say is you live and you learn. But w- yeah. when you bring up it, when I bring up the title, it's amazing. Like when I was talking about Logan and the rating and how it frees you to make an adult film. When you title a movie with a stupid title, mm-hmm. it signals something. It activates the press who looks at it like a kind of uh, trivial film. Mm-hmm. It activates the the artwork and the marketing and the trailer cutting all build around this kind of more simpleton version of the movie. And you, in many ways, night and day. Wichita, as I like to call it, never <laughs> recovered from the kind of effort to make it um, a kind of uh, very silly caper comedy as opposed to a real tribute to movies like Charade and an effort to make a kind of um, a pretty satirical look at the espionage, romance, and violence around the world in these days. And, and also... Tom Cruise taking a pretty brave um, poke at his own persona. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, particularly in the midst of the moment we were making that movie, I thought he was really brave in in playing a part um, about kind of the ultimate can-do guy, so can-do that he kind of makes you want to run. Um, <laughs> and um, I felt like that went... Marketing and framing on that movie went a long way to getting people turned off before they even watched it, I think. And then finally, last thing here, uh, 20th anniversary of Copland this year. You mentioned that earlier. Wow. Uh, I look at that and I see such an amazing cast and a great story from a writer-director, but I wonder how intimidated were you by that cast and and, and making that movie at that stage in your career? I have to, you know, it's one of the really great stories of my career on a uh, on a friendship level was the um, protectiveness of Robert De Niro on that movie for me. Um, he worked the first month of that movie and then went on to do a different show. And um, there, to a man, there wasn't another cast member, um, Ray Liotta, Harvey Keitel, Sly, Pete Berg. Uh, God, there's so many people in that movie. But the... Um, 
there wasn't one of them who didn't deeply respect Bob. And Bob was a neighbor of mine in downtown New York at that time. And the second he signed on the movie, he made it this thing of getting together every week and doing some research or sitting and having ginger tea and talking about the script. And um, and he really befriended me. He kind of... Um, and he said this thing to me early on at one of those get-togethers, which is like, you know, I don't usually work with young directors. And he goes, I just don't want you in awe of me. Tell me what you want. Always tell me what you want. And I was like, okay. And he said, even in the middle of when I'm acting, even better. Don't say cut. Just tell me what you want while <laughs> we're rolling. And it was one of the most freeing things. Because in the first week of shooting, I hear it's Bob and he's doing some scene at you know the uh, the IA headquarters in New York. And in the middle of the take, I'm like, come at that again. Come around. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and like Stallone and Leona and all these other guys are looking up like, you just cut <laughs> off Bob De Niro and are telling him what to do. And, and Bob comes twi- with twice as much energy into the scene. And, and he set a tone. Um, don't fuck with this kid. And um, in many ways, I'll be eternally grateful to him. Um, for that, because I think um, to a man, they all were really collaborative and lovely with me. Um, I think I was. Oh, I, it was a lot to handle um, as a second picture when your first movie was a was shot for two hundred fifty thousand dollars and all took place in a little diner. But mm-hmm. um, but I look back with huge and fond memories about being surrounded with that kind of talent and um, and hearing my words brought to life by those guys. It was incredible. And we didn't talk about Walk the Line, but Man in Black would have been 85 this past weekend. Yeah, he just would have turned. And, you know, I've thought about uh, Johnny Cash a lot as I've been working on this movie. You know, A, we used, um, we're using a song of his to close our picture, and we used another song of his um, in the marketing campaign for Logan. But it's not, it's not only that it works, I think it had, in both cases, in use, um, but that there's, there's, you know, my work is very disparate. You know, I've moved from genre to genre, but a lot of things, if you look beneath the easy surface of genre, stay very constant for me. And for instance, Johnny Cash and Logan are brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, for me, um, a deep understanding in John and always was of feeling the outsider, um, feeling uh, uh, ashamed of his past, carrying a kind of shadow through life um, and trying to understand how he could use his own darkness in positive ways. Um, I'll end our interview, if you want, with a story that John told me a couple weeks before he died, which was really moved me and um, relates to Logan in a big way, which is that um, I, after June Carter died, I, I continued speaking to John um, on Saturday mornings via phone and um, uh, part of it was um, some of his family suggested it was good for him just to keep talking about the movie because, you know, he was grieving for the loss of his lifelong partner, and it was a stunning death. And um, so we would talk on Saturdays, and I had really gotten all I needed for the script at this point, but there was one day I was just shooting the shit with him, and I started asking him about his favorite movies. And he, and he says, you know, uh, my favorite movie was Frankenstein. <laughs> and and I go, oh, really? When you see it? And he was like, when I was nine, I saw it at the, you know, the Dias Cinema. There was a little theater in Dias, Mississippi. And he went and saw the movie. And he said, uh, it was stunning to me because I looked around and all the other kids and all the other grown-ups in the theater were, like, terrified of this monster. But I felt like I identified with him. And he said, you know, I was nine years old, but I felt like I was made up of all these bad parts sewn mm. together. Wow. And, you know, I remember him telling me that story and being really moved and thinking about what that must feel like. And But I remembered it recently because I think that's that cuts to it's the very applicable. core of who Logan is, yeah. that he's been, um, that he walks through life carrying this ton of shame and um, this feeling that he's not for this earth and not good enough to deserve love or family, and yet we know different as we watch him. Um, and I think that uh, that's something I really tried to bring to this, and I think Hugh knocks out of the park. Well, the, Wolver- the movie's called The Wolverine 3, Electric Boogaloo. Uh, uh, good, yeah. <laughs> the movie's Night called Logan. Night and day with claws. Go see Logan tomorrow. It opens uh, everywhere. Uh, it's amazing. And, James, thanks again for coming on the show. My really pleasure, Chris. It. Always interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to subscribe to Playback and check back for Season 2 in a couple of weeks. You've been listening to Playback at Variety. Playback.